Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi, I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. Stories that will cover a broad spectrum of lived experiences, from time and service to the return home and beyond. Experiences shared with the hope that all listeners will better understand the sometimes complicated lives of veterans and their families. Thank you for listening to We Happy Few. In this episode of We Happy Few, Jason Comstock and I have a conversation with Sergeant Josh Hansen about the pride and purpose he felt working to keep roadways clear and soldiers safe in Iraq. When he was wounded and left the Army, Josh realized he still had a responsibility to those same men and women. All right, I'm Sergeant Josh Hansen, U.S. Army, retired. Uh, served two tours in Iraq. And when did you serve? I served, my first tour was 0405, and my second tour was 0607. And why join the Army? Uh, after uh, 9-11 occurred, um, I was running my own business and uh, managing a second business that I was planning on taking over and, and purchasing. And 9-11 occurred, and I was so affected that day um, that I basically talked to the wife you know I was a 30 years old and I went to talk to the wife and I says you know I really feel like I need to do something for the country because the country's been so good to me running my businesses and uh so I went and joined the military and how that's she, how uh, did she feel about that uh she knows you know we've been married well we've been married this will be our 25th year so obviously we've been married several years before 9-11 and I've always had a draw towards the military. My grandparents have all served. My gra- my dad served, and I always told my wife, you know, I'd really like to serve my country sometime. But once you get into your own business, and I was a, a mechanic for pro motocross racers, so I was traveling all over the states doing the outdoor nationals, supercross races. I mean, it was a killer gig, right? And so um, I just continued with that. Uh, but after nine eleven, I said, okay, now is my time to join the military. And what was the uh, the impact of joining the military on you personally? Uh, well, going through basic training at 30 was interesting. Um, you know, drill sergeants were laughing at you saying, wow, you know, you're so much older than us, Grandpa, and <laughs> stuff like that, which was pretty interesting. And uh, 
uh, it's definitely a different a different way to to live life. Um, you know, going from the civilian side to military, um, being structured, uh, and then you know getting deployed. I think you know it's to me it was seemed to be. To me, it was probably – I felt like it was harder on the family at home than it was me being overseas because I knew if I was out on a dangerous mission or if I was hanging back and doing my laundry, you know, to your family members and people here at home, you know, every day you're in danger and, you know, horrible things could be happening. So I think it's pretty difficult for the ones at home too to deal with your service overseas. You know, my wife, every time somebody would knock on the door – she would just pray that it wasn't, you know, the men in uniform letting her know I was killed or something. So it's pretty traumatic for everyone involved. So how did you help her with that? Uh, well, you know, my first tour, we just basically had phone conversations through the military phones. And my second tour, we were actually able to use computers and uh, use like Skype and uh, video record and talk to each other. And I just tried to... You know, I told a lot of stories, you know, like instead of driving from Kuwait into Iraq, I told her I was taking a plane flight, you know, set her mind at ease. Um, instead of, uh, you know, if, when things started getting really bad and hairy and I could tell that I wasn't feeling right, I told her my camera wasn't working, you know, so she couldn't see my face of how, you know, after mission or whatnot and uh, the death and destruction you go through. And so to protect her on that end, you know, you just kind of have to play things up a little and let them know everything's okay. Did that work? Did she believe you? Yeah. I mean, you know, of course, they don't know any different. And, you know, I think it was better for her to, to, to know that. You know, it's not until you get home and then all your guys are like, oh man, we're we're traveling from Kuwait to to Baghdad and all this was going on and trucks were breaking down and firefights and it's like, oh yeah, I told you I flew there, sorry. You know, sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness and permission on a lot of things and I think to protect family members, that's what I felt I needed to do was let her know everything's great here. I'm uh, just hanging out on base not doing anything, you know. Was some of that, though, easier for you? I mean, you didn't have to deal with her being upset if you just told her, hey, things are cool here. I mean, there's you don't have to go there. Right. Go there twice, I guess. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think it's a protection thing. I think it's something we we do to for ourselves and for them, mm-hmm. you know, to help me rest at ease and not be stressed out or stressing her out or my family members like my mom and them when I talk to them on the phone or computer. But a lot of it is um, you're a soldier. You're not really trying to be a human being. Right. <laughs> so going, you know, having those conversations with your mom or your wife mm-hmm. who see you only as a human being and not a soldier, like that must be a difficult, especially when you're in country, when you're on assignment. Yeah, it's, you know, you almost kind of have to have a whole different personality when you're in a combat zone. You know, some things that are absolutely horrific, you honestly have to kind of joke and laugh about them so you can survive that moment if that makes sense you know if you took everything so personal and and soaked it all in um i don't think you'd be able to do your mission i mean you have to lock things away you know you have to do your mission you have to 
see and go through these horrible events to survive and get home. You know, that's the whole main goal is protecting those that are with you and making sure everyone gets home safe. And that's difficult to do if you get too into your head and and get too involved. So you almost have to disconnect of humanity in a way to to continue mission on on your what you're doing. You know, especially after we lost uh several guys over there. You know, the next day you have to go on mission. I mean, you basically have to tell the guys you're with, you know, hey, their war's over. You know, they're they're dead, they're gone. We need to continue mission. We need to do our job here so we can get home ourselves. And a lot of those things didn't come back to me and haunt me until I get home. And then you're like, you know, I really had to talk rude to the guys. I had, you know, when an Iraqi soldier died, um, basically in my arm as I'm unloading him out of a vehicle. I was like, well, I'm glad it was an Iraqi and not one of our soldiers. And then you get home and you get, you know, he had a family. He was doing what he felt was right for his country. Um, but to survive moments, you just have to kind of disconnect. You know, I know our law enforcement firefighters do the same thing because how can you handle car wrecks and all the stuff they deal with? You know, you have to have a different personality to handle it. Yeah. Um. So your first deployment was where did you go to Afghanistan? I did both tours in Iraq. Both tours in Iraq. Yes. Okay. So tell me, having had a year at that deployment and having those experiences. What was it like to know you were going to go again? Honestly, I volunteered for both my tours. Okay. I was never actually said, hey, you're being deployed. Um, my first tour, they said, hey, there's an asphalt group going over to Iraq, and they need a security team. Who wants to volunteer and go over? And I thought, well, I joined at the age of 30 years old to serve my country, and I'm just sitting around in the States doing the Army Reserve thing. So I raised my hand and said, yeah, I'll go over and, and be with them. Uh, so my first tour, we did uh, asphalt paving up in the Blot area um, on on the uh, bridge over by the Euphrates River um, and that type of stuff. And then when I got home from my first tour, you know, when you're overseas, you can't wait to get home. Once I got home, I just thought, man, I don't feel at home anymore. I felt I needed to get back overseas. Um the civilian world seemed chaotic to me now, and I felt, you know, I'm here in a safe zone while others are in danger, and I felt I need to get, you know, I'd be more useful overseas helping others because I've been there, done that already. And I found a unit, the 321st uh, Combat Engineers out of Boise, Idaho. Um, I was in a sister unit here in Utah, uh, the Charlie Company, and Alpha was being deployed. So they said, you know, hey, we're going to be IED hunters, finding the bombs on the roads. We're probably going to have a turnover rate because it's a dangerous job, obviously. And we'd like some leadership to go. And talked to the wife. Uh, she could tell I was having struggles being home. She didn't know how to handle it herself either. Uh, so she says, yeah, if you really feel like you need to get back over there, then uh, you know, go ahead and volunteer with them and head back over. So I was home for about six, seven months. When I went back over. So was it a relief to be back over there? Or what yeah. What was the emotion? Uh, as, soon as, as soon as I told them I would go join them, they were already on their pre-deployment uh, elsewhere. So I joined them. And, you know, when they greeted me in open arms, I said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're coming back over with us after just getting home. That's so great. We're excited to have you. 
And that was that brother sisterhood of military that I was like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. And as being an IED hunter and I got put in the lead vehicle where you're the point truck finding the IEDs, um, you know, my mom said, you know, do you ever regret volunteering and going back over and getting, you know, after getting injured? And I said, you know, I don't due to the fact that every bomb I found and pulled off the road was three lives saved from death or injury. And that's a pretty rewarding job to have when you're finding these explosive devices and pulling them off the roads. Explain a little bit, like, how you find them. I mean, you're not out there with, like, a metal detector, like, people looking for change, right? No. When in Iraq, it was really a cat-mouse game. Um, They were really good at what they did and would have to, you know, being outside the vehicles there was a bad idea due to the fact that it was so new to all of us and our... You know, my highest tech of equipment that I used was our vehicle, which was an RG31 that had a uh, that was a bomb vehicle. You know, to help us survive hits that we if we missed them, and then also a great pair of binoculars. You know, so I didn't have to get so close to something that I thought was suspicious of an IED. And uh, unfortunately, you learn the hard way with that job. I mean, all the time they're they're changing things. Um, I'd find out what they're doing, so it was easier for me to locate the bombs, and then they'd change it up. So then I'd get blown up, and then I'd be like, okay, now they're doing this. And it was just back and forth. I mean, it was a dangerous game, and you're just hoping you don't get anyone killed uh, or miss something and have something blow up behind you and kill someone. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Um, I mean, if you, you can imagine living day in and day out. I hope I don't get someone killed today or myself. Um, so your brain gets trained that way, you know, and that's what makes it hard coming home as well is trying to readjust from – passing something up that could kill you here at home, you know, your brain's telling you, stop the vehicle, stop the vehicle, this could explode, and uh, trying to retrain that brain to not think that way is very difficult, and I think that's where a lot of the post-traumatic stress and trying to explain it to civilians is so difficult, um, and that's about the only way I can really say. Because we're like, that's a pile of garbage. Why? You can see it's garbage. Right. Why doesn't that make sense to you? Yeah. yeah. So can you talk about what's it like the first time you're in your vehicle and that explosion happens? That's a pretty sick feeling, um, especially when it's on your vehicle. And um, the first one I got hit with that I missed was um, the roads on the side were fairly clear. And then there was like a bush up ahead and just being fresh in country and not in the game. You know, you're rolling up on it, and, oh, guess what? That's a fake bush with bomb, you know, and uh, it went off on us. And, um, you know, it's one of those things you just really learn as you go, and it was, you know, everything kind of happened so slow motion. I think your your body goes into kind of a shock mode, and things really slowed down. You know, the explosion, the smoke, the dust, the shrapnel drill in the vehicle, um then everyone in our truck, you know, making sure they're all okay and you uh, didn't get someone killed because you missed something. You know, that was the the difficult thing of everything, I think. And so, yeah, it's every time you get, I got hit was, you know, just that slow motion movement. Yeah. yeah. So can you take us to, um, to when you were injured? And sure. That's kind of what happened there. Yeah, I was uh, clearing a route in an area by Fallujah. Um, I want to say it was in the Zidon area, just outside of Fallujah, 
which was a pretty hot zone. Uh, working the roads there, and um, came around a corner. It was nighttime. We already had found a couple of IEDs that night and got them disarmed and removed safely. I come up around a corner on this road, and they had broke concrete down this whole section of road, and it was just like they sledgehammered it and spread it across the road, so you absolutely couldn't see anything. And uh, we radioed back just saying, hey, everybody hang back. You know, we can't tell what's going on here because they've really messed with the the area. So driving extremely slow down this area looking for things. Um, my TC on my on the passenger side, he uh, noticed an ID under behind a bush. I uh, hurried through the vehicle in reverse, full throttled as quick as I could. They set it off once they realized we had seen it, and uh, it damaged the right side tires and some windshields. But I mean, we survived that hit, um, and it was my seventh hit. So I was always worried about number seven because seven's lucky for people, right? So I was thinking it was not going to be lucky for me, but be lucky for someone else. So we were actually in the truck kind of joking about that, going, hey, you survived number seven. Uh, I radioed back saying, hey, I can still drive this truck forward and backwards. I just have flat tires. I do not want to hook up here in the kill zone because it's still sketch with the way the road was set up. Um, so they brought some vehicles around me. They're little Husky vehicles that have, they're called Huskies. They have a mine detector underneath them. So they put these vehicles in front of me, scanned the whole road. Um, they said it was, you know, hey, nothing. They drove up about 100 meters. I you know, put the vehicle in drive, drove 20 meters, and we got hit by plastic landmines that the mine detectors didn't pick up. And there were, uh, EOD figured it was three stacked Italian mines, the plastic ones. Uh, they went off underneath the engine, almost blew the truck up and over backwards uh, as it went off. And from what the gunner says, I, w- I was knocked out and conscious for a while. Um, it was a pretty perfect scene from our side. You know, just nobody knowing if we were alive, dead, and people rushing in. We, um, you know, it's a... It's hard for me to remember that one. You know, <laughs> yeah. That was my last hit uh, but when I got medevaced out. Uh, luckily, no one died. Um, but, you know, just sustained injuries. And um, and I think we basically came the wrong direction. I think the, the enemy was wanting us coming the other way. So we would get hit by the plastic landmines. Everyone would be on the ground setting up the vehicle, and then that surface landmine or the surface bomb would go off to take out more people. And we actually came the backwards direction that threw off their their plan. But they still ended up taking out our vehicle. But you know, we all uh, survived. And when I talked to the Husky drivers a couple of years later, you know, they basically thought a bomb landed on one of the houses behind them. They had no idea it was me that got hit. They go, we didn't pick up anything. Well, plastic landmines, you know. Uh, so they had, you know, they suffered from things too because they thought they got me killed and the guys in my truck that day. And so you can imagine how post traumatic stress can affect so many people in different ways. Um, you know, it's real funny because I, for them to medevac me out um, in the areas we worked to get helicopters in there was not a safe at all. So they tried doing us by land. And they figured that our injuries weren't so life-threatening that they could 
you know, drive us safely back and not having to rush too much. But we kept finding, they said they continually found IEDs our whole trip back to Fallujah. So it took quite a while. And I remember the doctor being really irritated. You know, why did it take so long to get him here? You know, what? <laughs> you know, but I wasn't bleeding out or nothing. I was just uh, concussion, uh, traumatic brain injury, the mild traumatic brain injury, I guess, did, uh, just sent me loopy. And, um, I remember in Germany being up there, I was trying to get back to country. You know, when you have a brain injury, you just don't know you have a brain injury. And I was in an argument with a doctor, and, you know, she says, well, if you can just name three farm animals, I'll send you back to Iraq then if you think you're so fine. And my brain absolutely went blank. I mean, trying to think of three farm animals easier, right? And I couldn't. I mean, I honestly started crying because I just was so determined to get back to Iraq. It was pretty frustrating to know that, you know, something definitely is wrong here that I can't can't uh, get through that. You know, it was it was tough. You know, it was hard to leave everyone behind in a war zone while now I'm in a safe zone. That's pretty, you know, I felt like I let everyone down very, uh, I had a lot of guilt, you know. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. March uh, 15th, 2007. Did you make that phone call to your wife? Or did someone else tell her? Uh, my wife got a call from uh, the military. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's hard on them because they really didn't describe the injuries. You know, your husband's been injured. He's been medevac. They don't tell, you know, is he missing limbs? You know, what what happened? They just really kind of left it in the air for her. So you can imagine it was pretty traumatic for her. And, um, she had a difficult time even trying to get to, once I finally went from Germany to Bamsey, uh, Brooks Medi- Brook Medical Center down in uh, Texas, it took her a while to get things set up to where she could come down and visit me at the hospital. So, so has she told you what that was like for her to get that phone call? Uh, you know, it's, it's tough talking you know, I think we still have things we haven't discussed about. Sure. You know, I mean, she shares things with me like late at night she heard banging on the door. And so she took our young daughter and put her in a closet and then went downstairs to see who was banging on the door. You know, because the husband's not there. She has to handle things herself, right? It's a scary moment for her. And it was just our dogs had got out of the yard and were jumping against the door knocking. But, you know, it was a terrifying moment for her. Um, the moment we had three of our guys uh, killed overseas with us and unfortunately it got released to our unit in Idaho 
before family was notified. And so all the family members up in Idaho are calling the unit saying, was it my uh, soldier that got killed? And so their idea was, well, we'll just call all of them and let them know the ones that wasn't there. So my wife, being in Utah, had no idea what's going on because it wasn't put out in Utah newspaper or news. And so my wife received a call saying, you know, people were injured, some were killed, but your husband's doing fine. And that was all the information they gave her. And she was like, what the heck does that mean? You know, I mean, so you can imagine a family member going through that kind of torture. And because of the death and mission the next day, I wasn't able to contact her for like two, three days. So she's in this total panic wondering what the heck is going on until I finally was able to reach out to her. So, you know, it's pretty pretty difficult for family members to suffer through and go through. So how long were you recovering in Texas and when did you come back? I was in Texas for around three months. Uh, they wanted to get me to a point where they said, you know, felt that I'd be able to transfer up to Utah and get help here. Um, and then from that, I went, uh, so I went from Texas and started using the hospital up in uh, Hill Air Force Base. And Hill Air Force Base and the VA were communicating together with my case and then uh, started getting help through the VA system during that time. At what point did you know your Army career is over? Uh, I think probably uh, once going through the VA system and going through all the brain testing, uh, MRIs, it was, you know, for me, it was like I could hear what people would say to me and I'd go to respond. And in my brain, I was responding proper, but everybody was correcting me saying I was saying the wrong thing. So I was always extremely angry. Um, and it was really interesting now to look back and, and recall these kind of things, you know, why it was so frustrating. My right side didn't function as well. So I had to, I'd started doing a lot of things left handed. Um, like eating and that type of stuff. Uh, and the more I, you know, and it's frustrating too is, you know, you go to the hospital and they say, well, it's really hard to put a bandage on your brain. You know, so it's a very difficult injury to try recovering from. And they say, there's a, not a whole lot you, we can do to, to help you, which was very frustrating. And then around that same time, I'm watching hockey games and Sidney Crosby ends up with some concussions and they're, doing all these incredible tests for his concussions to get him back on the ice. And I'm like, why does that guy get all this cool stuff and this guy <laughs> is suffering here? I, I It really angered me. It was very frustrating. And so basically I just kind of took things into my own hands a lot, um, you know, scoring baseball games. You know, I felt the only way for my brain to function is to use it, you know, to do it myself. And so I would score baseball games, you know, you know, shortstop through the ball to first base and you, keep track of the numbers, ball strikes. Um, at those times, I'd realize like on my paperwork would be in the third inning and the game would actually be in the sixth inning. And I don't recall ever falling asleep or anything. It's like my brain would just shut off during this time. And I'd ask my wife, did I fall asleep? She's all, no, you've been talking to me. But it's like I'd have this lapse of time that I'd miss. Um, and I think at that time I thought, you know, this is not going to be a quick recovery. You know, I think that was my real wake-up call that, man, I really do have an issue here. Because um, I just see that myself 
personally because a lot of the tests and stuff you just think people are clowning you know it's which they probably think a lot of people's brain injuries are too because we don't we have the invisible wound nobody sees that you're injured they just think you're clowning when you're trying to speak or do things and i think that was that type of recovery frustrating as well Um, so so how do you come to terms with the new normal that took me several years um yeah i'd say so i was injured in 2007 and I'd say 2010 was my turning point. You know, myself, I was going down a very dark road. I was never leaving the house. Um, I uh, thought I was a complete burden to the family. My wife was a senior scientist at a nutraceutical company uh, formulating, uh, you know, protein powders, that type of stuff. She had this incredible job, and she had to quit that to take care of me. I just wasn't functioning. And so I felt I was this huge burden on everyone around me. And if I just wasn't around, everyone would be so much better off. And that's the road I was going down. You know, how do I plan out this way to die by suicide? And during that time, one of my soldiers that I trained to the best of my ability when we went to Iraq to make sure my men wouldn't die due to my lack of leadership, you know, I mean, things happen in war, but to have someone die because you didn't train them proper would be horrible. So these men that I trained to my best of ability to survive the war, he ended up dying by suicide here at home. And that, I felt like an absolute loser of a leader. I'm like, here I made sure they wouldn't die during the war, come home and he dies by suicide. You know, we need to, things need to change. We need to take care of each other. And, uh, that was my turning point, going to his funeral, seeing his pregnant wife, his kids, seeing how him dying by suicide affected so many people around him. And just sitting around that funeral, I was like, you know, if he could see this right now, I guarantee you he would take it back. And uh, that was my turning point to say dying by suicide is not the answer. Is working through my issues and moving on. And so I, at that time, I drew a line and said, okay, forget about, you know, I, I worried so much about, you know, I used to be this pro motocross mechanic. I traveled all over, did all these great things. Okay, that ended. You can still remember it. Don't dwell on it. And what can I do now? Quit worrying about what you can't do. Let's worry about what you can do or you want to try to do. And basically, I had to get myself healed enough to where I could heal others. And so I just started... You know, when you suffer from depression and anxiety, just walking out that front door and getting off the couch is tremendously difficult. But I forced myself to do it. I told myself, damn it, you are a warrior. You will do this. And even today, if I feel like, oh, I don't feel like going for, I know a run would be good for me, but I don't feel like going on one, that's when I force myself to go on a run. Um, I force myself to do a lot of things, um, and you really have to when you have depression. People that don't understand depression don't get that. Uh, those of us that do understand how difficult it is to get out and move. Um, I had put on so much weight because during my injuries and everything, I used it for an excuse for everything. Oh, I can't do this because of my injuries from the war, or I can't do that. or um, So I just sat around the house doing nothing. And with your legs kicked up and lounging around, I put on 50 pounds, 
course, the muscles in my legs, ligaments, everything was locked up. Uh, when I first started running, of course, my ankles, knees, and hips are going to hurt because they haven't been used forever. Um, and so I worked through all that pain, all that misery to where today I do trail races and enjoy it. But you have to push yourself through it and trying to convince others, you know, your depression is going to try to tell you no, but you need to fight it and, and move on. And it can be, it's easy to say, very difficult to do. A lot of hard work has to go into it. Um, but, you know, I've lost the 50 pounds and <laughs> I feel a lot, a lot better. And one thing I noticed is when I would get outside and just even walking around the block one mile, I would get back and be like, I'm so glad I did that. I heard birds chirp and I heard a dog bark and, you know, I waved at a neighbor. Um, and you have to remember that every time you go do something, you know, when I go on a bike ride or a hike, how much I'm going to enjoy it when I'm done. And uh, with depression, depression will tell you don't do it. You just need to stay in your safe zone. But by going out and doing these things, um, I've read all kinds of studies about it and, you know, exercises, how a lot of countries defeat depression. You know, the line of medication is the second resort. They use exercise and, and getting out in nature is one of the first line uh, defenses for depression. And I totally live by that. Um, and that's why we started the nonprofit Continue Mission. So go back to the inception of Continue Mission. Like, sure. I can understand going and doing things because you need to or you want to or you think it's going to help you and even reaching out to some friends. But, like, what makes you think, you know what, I could start a nonprofit and do this for lots of guys I've never met, right? So mm -hmm. what? How, what's that that leap? Where did, where did that come from? I think from from the misery I suffered through and losing uh, soldiers to suicide losing the men that I lost uh, to suicide. And in my head was, you know, we let them during the war. Let's do it here at home. How can I do that? So you're still their sergeant? No. Well, I don't feel I'm <laughs> the head, of, you know, on top of anyone else. It's just... But, but some of being a sergeant is yeah. just being, a, you know, a mentor. In right. A, in a, and like you said, you're going to put yourself out there so that they know it's okay. Yeah, and... Yeah, someone used to lead the way, and I felt, you know, my story was like so many others that I listened to. And when I would share my story, you know, like on social media, I'll share my personal stories. And it's amazing when you share a personal story of misery that you're going through, how many people are like, oh, my gosh, I'm going through that same thing. And it lets people know they're not alone. Uh, so for me, I thought, you know, if we can start an organization here in Utah – and get other veterans and their support members out of the house together doing fun events. Like, you know, it's basically the program's designed about m what healed me, what was my healing process. Mm -hmm. And getting out doing different events was my healing process. So what are some of the events that you guys do or are doing or have planned? Sure. During the winter, we do snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, alpine skiing, um, we do uh, bowling as well for the ones that don't want to go outside. Um, and then during the summer, we do disc golf, pickleball, uh, cycling, mountain biking, trail running. Uh, then we have big family events. Uh, just last night, we went to Sequest up in Layton, and we had over 100 of our veterans and family members there uh, at that event. 
So we really enjoy getting the families out together as well. Because to me, my family was so important for my deployment, my time overseas, and my recovery. And if we can get veterans out with their family member or support member doing these fun events, um, it's very healing for everyone, not just the veteran, but the family members that go through so much as well. So how do people get involved with uh, Continue Mission? Uh, Continue Mission is a nonprofit that serves veterans with mental, physical, and emotional injuries from their time in, in service. Um, so we, you know, they send in a service connection letter from the VA saying that they're uh, service-connected injuries or doctor-referred. Uh, we actually have quite a few uh, National Guard and Reservists that aren't going through the VA system, but doctors will refer them to our organization saying this veteran or military personnel could use your organization uh, to help get them back on their feet and moving and around like-minded individuals that understand them. Uh, and so that's been really good. How old is Continue Mission? Like, We're five years old now. Five years old. And um, have you uh, – do you feel some sense of purpose that um, you didn't – I mean you, you obviously felt like you needed to reach out and needed to do something, but it seems like um, there's a, I don't know, more purposefulness to it. Especially the last few years, like and especially the people you're helping. Yeah, for me, it's been very healing getting these the veterans out and hearing their stories of how the programs change their lives. And and we do a survey every year, and the survey results have just been incredible. About you know their connection with civilian population is better now. Family members, uh, there's lots of suicide. Like um, in one of our questions. Um, Almost 40% said they had thoughts of suicide in that past year. And out of that 40%, 95% said continue mission is why they are still here today because of doing the events and know that they have that network. And I think that's why continue mission works is you have that networking of your meeting other veterans and family members going through the same thing you're going through. And that network keeps building and growing so the veterans have more people to connect with and to reach out to when they're in a time of need. What's it like to read those um, surveys that say, I'm still here because you guys created this organization? It's very humbling. I mean, it's incredible to, to know. I mean, when he first started it, I says, if we can just help one veteran not die by suicide, it's a success. And to see the numbers and the emails that we receive – um, it's huge. You know, we had one veteran come out to a, an event and said, you know, he contacted me later and said, I had everything in the works and a plan to die by suicide. And I just wanted to do this one event and come out with your organization, do this one event. But by doing that, he met so many great people that he absolutely changes his mind says, you know what, you know, life's worth living. I need to continue mission in life and still comes out for organization today. And that's huge to hear that. You know, the sad information I get is when I get letters from family members that lost somebody by suicide. And they say, you know, we really feel if our son or daughter would have known about your organization and was coming out to your events, they would be here today. And so the frustrating thing for me is how do I get the word out more? How do we spread the word about continue mission so this stops happening, you know? I can't say we can save the world, but boy, we'll do our best to do what we can. <laughs> so where are you guys? Do you have uh, like uh, chapters around or well, how does it work? Yeah, we're just located here in Utah and basically just run the organization out of my house or my 
van, the Pathfinder one that we have. Um, and we do events from Moab, St. George, clear up to Beaver Mountain up by the Idaho border. We travel pretty much all of Utah to do events. Um, we have a trailer to haul the equipment, our paddle boards, you know, our cycles. Um, we do a lot of stuff up in Park City and then obviously the surrounding lakes for paddle boarding. Uh, we ski up at Snow Basin with Ogden Valley Adaptive. Um, you know, and the other organizations that support our programs, what's well, been really huge too, to get our veterans spread throughout the state of Utah doing river trips and stuff. And mm-hmm. our programs at no cost to the veterans or their family support members. If there are veterans that live serving the Intermountain West and want to do events and they they fit the other criteria, the service connected or a doctor mm-hmm. referral, can they do that? They don't have to be Utah residents. That's not a... Oh, definitely not. Yeah. No, we've had veterans registered from all over the country. And we have a veteran from California that travels here with work. And so he's on our email list. He got registered with us. He's on his our email list. And so he'll go through our, you know, month, couple of months of events and say, hey, I'll be in Utah on this day and that day. And he signs up for events. So when he's here, he can come out and enjoy what we're doing, which to me is huge, you know, to have that reach out. And Do you see the solution? I mean, um, I think there's a lot of – we could talk for a whole other hour about mm. why suicide is so closely associated with people who serve in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think – do you see the solution to this as um, organizations like this? or Because why can't the VA do something like this? I mean is it – or is it just guys like you, sergeants, lieutenants, or whatever, saying, I'm going to still lead and creating a, a network? Well, the VA has, you know, recreational therapy and has that uh, set up. And there just was a new report coming out that they're actually going towards more of the recreational therapy and getting out and doing what our organization has been doing for a couple of years because it's so effective. Um, so I think... I think with our organization, is a lot of the veterans and support family members know that my wife and I have lived it. You know, we've been there, done that. Two tours in Iraq, my wife suffered through things. So what's great is when the family members come out to do disc golf or pickleball or go for hikes, the support members can get together. You know, oh, your veteran's are doing that. Mine went through the same thing. Here's how we worked through it. And so they know you solidly understand what they're going through mm-hmm. and i highly recommend everyone get professional help plus seek out you know if continued mission's not for you there are so many organizations out there please use them you don't have to just use continue mission there are so many great programs out there to take advantage of to help support you through your healing process you know please use them i always recommend other organizations just, hey if our program isn't for you you know please try something that you know, search around, you know, do the, uh, the horses. There's so many different, you know, you just have to Google that stuff and it'll bring up a ton of programs helping veterans. So, Are you glad you served? Definitely. And my daughter, she joined. Uh, she's in South Korea currently right now. So, Army? Yes, she's okay. Army. She works with the Apache unit. Um, you know, and as a parent of a... Of a a military soldier it's it's different you know my mom when i told her i signed up for after 9-11 i mean it was devastated her because she went through vietnam with my dad you know they're both still together and so they're both kind of upset you know wow 
my dad's like, I served enough for two of us when I <laughs> survived in Vietnam and all the crap he went through, you know. And but I said, you know, Dad, I just really feel I needed to serve. And my connection with my dad now is so much better because I understand him. I mean, after being raised by a Vietnam vet, not getting it, and then you come home from war yourself, I just looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I get it. I totally understand now. And to where before, I don't think I'd ever had that connection. So to me, it's very, you know, I never would regret it and I'd never talk anyone out of doing it. You know, but definitely do it for the right reasons. You know, if you're just doing it because you want free college money, you're probably going down a wrong road. You know, you need to do it because you want to serve this country. You want to serve other countries and help others. You know, that's why you join the militaries because you want to help others. And I think that's what's so difficult for a lot of people to understand that when we get out of the military, you lose that purpose. You know, here I was like totally helping the world and now you're home and you don't feel like you have that purpose or you're feeling lonely. And today we're so connected by all our social media devices, but I think people nowadays are more lonely than ever before. And our organization, Getting People Together, actually out and moving together gives you that purpose and not feeling alone and unwanted. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.